Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Community Church. We are gathered this morning to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. And I want to remind us this morning that there was never a baby born like Jesus. Never in all of history. One of the things that's popular in our day is the birth announcement where... You know, a family celebrates the coming of this baby boy or this baby girl. But there was never a baby like the Lord Jesus. His birth announcement comes 700 years prior to his birth in the form of Old Testament prophecy. We're told many things about this baby centuries before his arrival. We're told that Jesus would be born of a virgin. In the city of Bethlehem. We're told that this baby would be born and the government would be upon his shoulders and his name would be called Mighty God. That's the wonder of Christmas. That this little baby's name would be Mighty God and the government would rest upon his shoulders. We're told that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon Jesus. And that he would sit on David's throne and he would rule forever. And the wonder of Christmas is that when these prophecies began to be fulfilled, they were not fulfilled by the arrival of a grown, full grown man, a man of might, a military conqueror. They were fulfilled by the birth of this little baby in the Bethlehem Manger. There was never one like Jesus. There is no one like him. So this morning, I want to spend our time. I want to remind us that he came, that Jesus really came for us and for our salvation. He came. And then I want us to look at the scriptures together this morning. I want us to be reminded of why he came, the why behind the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And I want us to close considering what does this matter for you? What does this matter for you? If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 5. And we're going to read this text together. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. This is the Word of God to us this morning. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is the word of God to Grace Community Church this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we come today to behold our Lord Jesus. Lord, we come to worship God. We come to adore the one who was born 
King of angels and Lord of all. And so, Lord, we ask for your help right now, God, that you would be pleased from heaven, God, to grant us your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit in the midst of your people this morning, that you would be pleased from heaven to bear witness to your son, Jesus, to his glory, to his obedience, to his all sufficiency. Lord, exalt Christ in our midst. God, we pray for our time over this text of Scripture that you've breathed out, God, that you have given us. Lord, that you would be pleased this morning to call us into wonder and amazement, to warm our hearts in response to what Jesus has done. Call us into worship this morning. Lord, I pray for the lost in this room. God, we ask that you would be pleased from heaven, that righteousness would rain down this morning, and that salvation would spring up from the ground today. As your son Jesus is exalted, that you would be pleased, Lord, to effectually call this morning those who belong to you. Those who have heard hundreds of times that they would really hear this morning, Lord. That they would really see the glory of your Son, Jesus. Lord, restore our first love all across this room for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. I want to begin this morning by drawing our attention to that first phrase in verse 7. In the days of his flesh. That's our Christmas text this morning. The Holy Spirit wants to instruct us this morning of something that happened in the days of Jesus' flesh. In the days of his flesh. And that phrase reminds us of other passages in the Bible that make it really clear that there was a time that Jesus did not have flesh. Probably the most clear place we see this is John chapter 1, verse 14. We're told that the eternal word became flesh, that there was a moment in time where God the eternal Son became God the incarnate Son, where God the eternal word took on flesh and he dwelt among us. And so these were the days of his flesh. The days of Jesus' life on earth before he was glorified to the right hand of God the Father. The days of his flesh. These were the days of the humiliation of the Son of God, the days of his suffering, the days of his life in this world. When he truly became a man, the days of his flesh, he truly enters in to the full you know, uh, realm of our human experience, minus one thing, sin. He fully enters in as a man, as a real human being in the days of his flesh. He was subject to hunger and thirst. Think about how amazing that is. 
How humiliating that is for the eternal Son that He would now need sustenance. He would hunger and thirst. He would now be subject to sorrow and grief. He would enter into a world and be subject to fear and pain. And the most mind-blowing thing of all about the days of His flesh is that the eternal Son would be subject to death itself. The humiliation of the Son of God, the days of His suffering. And I want you to consider this morning that there was never a more drastic change in all of history than the change that was incurred when the Son of God took on flesh, when He became flesh, when He condescended and dwelt among us. He left eternal glory and He came to this world. He left eternal glory And He came and He dwelt among us. The one whom angels worshipped took the form of a servant. He left the high and holy place and He came to dwell in this sin-soaked world. Change is so drastic that we refer to this as the humiliation of the Son of God. I want you to catch a few of these moves that the God without beginning, the infinite eternal God, takes on a human nature that has a beginning. A human nature that that really began, it was knit together in the womb of the virgin Mary, that the God who was without weakness didn't sleep, never slumbers. That he became weak, so weak that he was an infant child, totally dependent on sustenance and care and nourishment. It was during these days, the days of his flesh, that our text tells us that Jesus accomplished something. That he accomplished something in the days of his flesh. Look at verse 8 and then look at verse 9. There's two things in this passage. What happened in the days of the flesh of Jesus, verse 8 tells us that it was during these days that he learned obedience. That the son learned obedience. Verse 9, it was during these days, the days of his flesh, that the son was made perfect. So I want you to consider those two phrases this morning. When Jesus learned obedience, when Jesus was made perfect, this is getting behind the why Of the incarnation. This is why he's here. This is why Jesus came. And this is a much needed message in our culture. The why behind the incarnation. You say, what do you mean? Okay. We need to understand that acute baby Jesus story. A nativity scene without a cross. It saves nobody. We have to understand the why behind the baby in the manger. Why is he here? Why did he come? Why are they worshiping him? Why the eternal son become the incarnate son? Why the eternal God take on human flesh and human nature? Why? And this text tells us so that he could learn obedience. So that this man could be made perfect. What was Jesus doing? In the days of his flesh. And the answer to this passage is he was accruing a perfect righteousness before God. A spotless obedience 
before his father. Why is that needed? Because there's no one in this room that has a righteousness that can stand before the holy judge of all. No one. The holiest man, the holiest woman in this room. We cannot stand before the righteous judge of all. He is the God that's the consuming fire, the everlasting burnings. He's the holy one of heaven. All sin will be cast out of his presence. And so God sends his son. And in the days of his flesh, he accrues a perfect obedience. The obedience that we should have rendered. Jesus renders for us and for our salvation. I want you to think about that phrase this morning in verse 8. That he learned obedience. That Jesus learned obedience. This highlights when we consider Jesus Christ. We have one glorious Christ, one glorious person, and we have two natures. There's no one like him. He has a divine nature and a human nature. 100% God, 100% man. This is why we refer to the Lord Jesus as the God-man. We can consider Jesus from two angles. We can consider this one glorious person, and we can consider him according to his divine nature. And we begin to worship him as we consider him according to his divine nature as the king of angels. Before Abraham was, he is. He's God. But we can also consider Christ according to his human nature. He's a real man. And that's what this phrase highlights, that he learned obedience. This is highlighting the humanity of Jesus. You say, what do you mean? God doesn't learn anything, but the son learned something. He learned obedience. He became a man. He took on a finite nature. He had to learn stuff. He's a real man. This learning was a new experience for the eternal son of God. In eternity, Jesus, the the, the eternal Son of God, He learns nothing. He knows all things. But in His incarnation, this is a whole new experience for the Son. That He has to learn. He begins to learn things. Philippians 2 gives us a grid to understand such language in Scripture. Beginning in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2, we are told that this Son is in the form of God. That though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. And so where was Jesus before he was born? Philippians 2 tells us he's in the form of God and he's equal with God the Father before he's born. And then he didn't count that as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. Mild he lay his glory This is what the song we just sung said. The one who was equal with God in Philippians chapter 2 condescends and becomes the servant of God. It's a whole new experience for the Son. The eternal Son becomes the incarnate Son of God. Philippians 2 verse 8 says this, And being found in human form... He humbled himself by becoming 
obedient. It's a whole new experience for him. He's having to learn obedience now because now he has this finite human nature. He's, he's no longer just the eternal son. Now he's the eternal son and the incarnate son. It's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. One glorious Christ, two natures, fully God and fully man. He's learning obedience. The one who was equal with the Father from all eternity now learns obedience to the Father in his incarnation. This is Christ. This is a massive shift. This is the condescension, the stooping down for us and for our salvation, the humiliation of Jesus, the emptying of himself, the laying aside of his glory. And so we have all of these moves. The infinite God is now the infant in the Bethlehem manger. The high king of heaven is now submissive to his father in heaven. The one who made oxygen and water and, and bread is now dependent on the very things that he has made. Air and water and food. The one who breathed out his holy law is now placed under his law that he breathed out. He was born of a woman, born under the law. And this is what it means when we confess that Jesus was a man. It's not that he kind of appeared to be a man. He really enters in to our condition. Fully God and fully man. One Christ, two natures. And we're told that he's learning obedience. Now, just a clarifier that that phrase that the son learns obedience, the one thing it cannot mean is that there's ever a time in Jesus' life where he moves from disobedience to obedience. And we know that that's true because the very same writer in the letter of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is sinless. So that's the one thing it cannot mean. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It tells us that Jesus, in every respect, he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So learning obedience doesn't mean that he came out of disobedience and into obedience. So what do these phrases mean? What do these phrases mean about Jesus, the sinless son of God? We have two of them. He learned obedience, that he was made perfect. And this is part of his glory. And I want us to behold it this morning. That these phrases are highlighting, they're focusing in our attention on the development of Jesus as a real human being. He developed from childhood to mature manhood. Jesus learned things. He was a real man. He had to learn obedience. Think about this. That means he had to learn in time, in history, what God required of him. See, we could have some wrong ideas that, that he's like, um, 
you know, this pseudo-human, that he comes into the world and according to his human nature, he already knows everything. That's not true. That's not a real man. He has to learn stuff. There is a point in time where Jesus has to learn the Hebrew alphabet from his mama and his daddy. He has to learn stuff. He has to learn how to count basic things in this world. This is how weak the son made himself. This is, how, this is the depths of his humiliation. Laying aside his glory. He had to learn what God required of him. That means when he was born, he didn't have the whole Hebrew Old Testament downloaded in his mind. He had to learn it. He had to learn it like a real man, like a real person. Listening to the scriptures preached. Reading the scriptures for himself. Can you imagine those holy moments? Hundreds and thousands of those holy moments in the life of Jesus where he's learning obedience. Where he's developing as a man. As a perfect man. Learning what God requires of him. Think about these holy moments. Don't you wish you could have been there the first time that Jesus reads the book of Genesis? Think about that. The first time that Jesus, the man, according to his human nature, begins to read Genesis. And these stories begin to fall upon the Holy Son in his mind and in his heart. Think about this. Think about Genesis 22. First time Jesus reads that story where Abraham is called to sacrifice his only son on Mount Moriah. That story where the angel stops Abraham and the, the father confesses that the Lord will provide the lamb for himself. And God provides that sacrifice and they name that whole mountain where this exchange happens. On this mount it will be provided Mount Moriah the substitutionary sacrifice that God will provide imagine those moments where God is I mean Jesus is learning all these stories of how God has dealt with Israel his people how God has held forth this covenant for his people when he's learning about the character of God the law of what God requires of him holy moment Holy moments. And then think about this confidence that begins to develop in this holy child as he begins to realize with increasing clarity that all these scriptures are about him. They're about him. That that lamb that God was going to provide, that's him. That that ruler from the tribe of Judah, that king to sit on David's throne, that's him. In his humanity, he's learning obedience. He's taken in the revelation of God in Holy Scripture. I want you to see how low he made himself. He's a man. He's a perfect man. The one who could never learn anything is now learning obedience. He had to seek knowledge, the knowledge of God like we do. By God's revelation of what God has revealed about himself. He's a real man. He's not just a man, but he's a real man. Not a pseudo man. 
So we have this one glorious Christ. And this passage is zoning our attention on Christ Jesus, the man. The one who learned obedience. Luke says it this way in Luke chapter 2. That this holy son increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's beautiful. That's glorious. That's glorious to, to contemplate, to meditate on the perfection of Jesus Christ developing as he moves from infant child to full grown man, learning obedience, increasing in wisdom, even increasing in favor with God and man. So in the days of his flesh, Jesus is learning obedience. And the text tells us in verse 9 that he was made perfect. That he was made perfect. So we have the same problem here, right? Because the one thing that this cannot mean is that Jesus ever moved from imperfection to perfection. Can't mean that. What is this text highlighting? Well, the word perfect in verse 9 can also mean complete, complete. And so we could view it like this. In the days of his flesh, we could say that the obedience of Jesus was brought to a perfect completion. That in the days of his flesh, his obedience was made perfectly fitted. He was made the perfectly fitted savior of sinners. Perfected. Completed. And notice in verse 9, verse 8, we are told that he learns disobedience through suffering. That the Son learns obedience through suffering. And that means, consider this this morning, that when the Son began to learn obedience before his Father, he did not learn the obedience of the Garden of Eden. Okay, That's not the, the situation that he was placed in. He wasn't placed in a perfect world where everything was right, where there was no suffering. That's not where the son learned his obedience. He learned his obedience through suffering. Through suffering. And so when God displayed the perfect obedience of the incarnate Son, He didn't do it in the Garden of Eden. Where did He do it? Right in the middle of this sin-soaked world. The land of darkness was pierced with the light of Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul tells us that this world as we know it right now is groaning for deliverance for the day of redemption. Jesus came and displayed perfect obedience in the midst of a creation that's groaning for the sons of God to be revealed. He did it in the midst of a sin-soaked world. And I want us to understand that this morning, that in the days of His flesh, Jesus faced more severe trial... And more severe temptation than we can possibly imagine. This son learned his obedience through suffering in the days of his flesh. In a fallen world. 
And so this obedience that the son accrues in his life on earth, it's a perfect obedience. And and even more specific than that, it's a proven obedience. It's shown to be perfect. It's shown to be an obedience that withstands temptation. It's shown to be a tested obedience that stands the test of a fallen world. In fact, it stands every test that is thrown against it. He is tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And so his obedience that he learns, it was completed, it was perfected in the furnace of suffering. Though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Hebrews says this in a couple of different places. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 says it this way. For it was fitting that he should make the the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And so we need to understand this. This is the will of God. That we would have a savior whose obedience was shown to stand in the day of testing. A rock-solid obedience that he learned through suffering. Verse 7 zones in on this perfect obedience of Jesus with this phrase, In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And so we have a glimpse here of the prayer life of Jesus. Now that's a whole different glory all by itself. I mean, how glorious would that be to meditate on for about an hour together that this incarnate son enjoys this perfect communion with his father. And so Jesus prays his entire life, his entire life. He communes with the father. But this phrase is a reference more specifically to his prayers in the garden of Gethsemane. In the garden of Gethsemane. So I want you to understand the moves that scripture makes. When the Holy Spirit has called our attention this morning to the days of the flesh of Jesus. We have a beeline that takes us to the garden of Gethsemane. This is the why behind the incarnation. That in a very real sense, this baby was born to die. He took on human nature to die for our sins. It was at the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus begins to cry out, according to verse 7, to the one who is able to save him from death. So we have this holy moment of this perfect son who's learning obedience to the Father through the things that he suffers. And then we have this climax of his perfect life as he draws near the the death of the cross, his climactic act of obedience. And we zone in at the Garden of Gethsemane. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, we're told that Jesus renders These cries, these loud prayers that he renders, loud cries and tears. Luke's gospel tells us that these were prayers of agony for the incarnate son. 
We're even told in Luke's gospel that Jesus prays with such intensity in the Garden of Gethsemane that sweat begins to fall from his body like great drops of blood. Never was the obedience of the incarnate Son tested more fiercely. What's he doing here? He's learning obedience through the things that he suffers. It was here as he begins to peer into the cup of wrath that he's about to drink from his Father for us and for our salvation. It was here in the Garden of Gethsemane that his human nature, his creaturely capacities to suffer, began to be stretched to the absolute limits The absolute limits of his humanity. What was God doing with the birth of this holy son in the midst of this sinful world? He was showing how perfect Jesus really is. He took him to the very limits of his creaturely capacities. And it was here that the conflict for his perfect obedience, it grew the fiercest. That Jesus was about to do the hardest thing that a human being has ever done. He was about to bear God's wrath for sinners. He was about to take the cup from His Father and He was about to drink it down in obedience to His Father's commands. Brothers and sisters, Jesus did this in the days of His flesh. That this perfect Son... In the garden of Gethsemane. He begins to pray in in agony to his father. As he approached his darkest hour. His deepest test. He was about to face the sword of God's justice. And he was about to face it as a man. His frail humanity was about to drink the cup of the crushing wrath of God. No one has ever been tested like Jesus. He endures trials and temptations, the depths of which we will never understand. The man is about to drink the cup of wrath. And we're told that under the weight of this task in verse 7, that Jesus begins to pray with loud cries and tears, Behold the man Christ Jesus. Behold him there. Loud cries and tears. There were tears rolling down his face in the garden of Gethsemane when he considered the task that was in front of him. It was stretching him to the very limits. He was crying out at the top of his lungs for deliverance to his father. And he was sweating. He was in such agony that he was sweating Drops of blood. No one ever resisted sin to the shedding of blood like Jesus. No one's like him. Behold him there. Tears streaming down his face. What's he doing? The son is learning obedience through the things that he suffered. He's being stretched to the absolute limits as he begins to enter into the final hour, final hours of his life. 
In verse 7, we're told that Jesus begins to call on, and listen to this name for God the Father, the one who was able to save him from death. That's beautiful. That's what Jesus, that's Jesus' view of the Father, the one who is able. Jesus began to call as a real man in a perfect human nature. He began to call on the one who was able to save him from death. Notice very carefully, he asked not to be saved from dying. He asked to be saved from death. He asked to be delivered from the place of death. There were prophecies about this moment that the father had promised that his servant, that his son, that his Messiah would not allow, be allowed to rot in Sheol. He wouldn't be left to, to be corrupted in Sheol. Jesus begins to call on the one who is able to save him from death. And so in verse 7, we have this holy moment. This holy moment. Where this perfect man in his final hours is trusting God to raise him from the dead. He's trusting the Father in his final moments that as he passes through this dark valley of the shadow of death that he would be delivered, that he would be rescued from death to the one who was able to save him. From death. He's a perfect man to the very end. He's the true and better Job. Job told his friends this about God though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. That's exactly what Jesus is doing in this moment. He's about to fall on the Father's sword, he is about to be crushed by the wrath of God. And even still, the perfect Son has perfect trust. In his father, he's a perfect man with perfect faith and perfect obedience. This text tells us that Jesus' prayer was answered. He was heard, listen, because of his reverence. Because of that perfect, spotless obedience. God heard his prayer. And that means that Jesus was raised from the dead because death had no claim upon Jesus. He was the perfect son of God. It could not hold him because death had no claim upon him. He was heard because of his reverence. And so we're coming full circle in this text that in the days of his flesh, this little sinless baby became this perfect man, Christ Jesus. He weaves this spotless garment of perfect obedience with his entire life. And what happens next? Verse 9, being made perfect, he became the source. I want you to understand this. His perfect obedience becomes the only ground for the salvation of sinners. Being made perfect, this man becomes the source of salvation. Because he is perfect, he became the source. 
There's no hope of salvation for sinners apart from the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. This is the source. This is where salvation flows from. Because now, finally, one has arisen who can meet the demands of the law of God. With his perfect life, he never sinned. And with his sacrificial death, he pays for the punishment that sin deserved. This is referred to as the active and the passive obedience of Jesus Christ. All of it is like a perfect garment. His perfect obedience. He becomes the source of salvation. And notice that it's eternal salvation. Jesus becomes the the source of eternal salvation. And this is fitting, right? If If the merits of the one who has died for our sins are infinite, then that means that the salvation that he procures, that he buys, that he purchases, should be what? Eternal. It's only fitting, right? That this is what the death of the perfect Son of God would bring about, is eternal salvation from sin. There will be no more yearly atonement. There will be no more sacrifices of blood, the blood of bulls and goats. Why? Because the perfect son has come. And he's laid down his perfect life as a perfect sacrifice. All these shadows in the Old Testament, they're now they've given way to the eternal salvation that Jesus provides. Listen to how he says it in Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, As the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's what happened in the days of his flesh. In the days of his flesh, the perfect son of God, he put sin away by sacrificing himself. No more yearly atonement. He's offered the sacrifice that ends all other sacrifices. The blood of the holy son of God. Purchase. Eternal salvation from sin. The last thing that we're told in verse 9 is that this salvation is said to be freely given, listen, to all who obey Him. So all that stuff that we just talked about, these glorious realities of what God has done in His Holy Son, all that is meant to be good news To everyone who falls in this certain category of persons. To all who obey Him. 
And that's what I want to call us to this morning, is I want to call us to obey Him. And there's nothing more fitting, right, that our response to this perfect man, the man Christ Jesus, tempted in every way that we have been tempted, tested in ways that we can't even imagine, and yet without sin. It's only fitting, right, that we would obey Him. And I want to call us this morning to obey Him. To obey Him. This is not a call to pray a religious prayer to Jesus Christ. Jesus did not leave eternity and, and, and take up residence in this sin-soaked world, defeat every sin and every temptation so you could chunk up the sinner's prayer like a magic formula that you say this thing and boom, you're saved. That's not why He came. That's not the obedience that He demands. And so I want to call us this morning to obey Him. To obey Him. And that's not it. That's not it. Neither is this a call, this obedience to Jesus Christ, to bring Him your own righteousness. Look what I can do, Jesus. He didn't leave the high and holy place of heaven so you could come and, and right beside this perfect sacrifice say, look what I can do, Jesus. Look what I've done, Jesus, my whole life. This is not a call to bring your own obedience, to bring your own righteousness. That's not what this text means by obey Him. And so I want us to all understand that this is eternal gospel to all who obey Him. To all who obey Him. And that means to every person who bows the knee to this perfect man, Jesus Christ, Lord of all, to obey Him, to surrender to Jesus as Lord. Jesus, You are Lord. You have all authority. You are perfect, Lord Jesus. I am not. Obey Him. Submit to Him. Bow before Him as King. It means to surrender your righteousness. Any supposed claims that you have to your own goodness to obey Him means that you set your righteousness aside. It's filthy garments before God. And to obey Him means that you confess that His righteousness is better. Jesus, I need you. You are the perfect man. You, you have offered the perfect sacrifice. This is our only hope. In the day of judgment is the obedience of Jesus Christ. And this is what the gospel offers us. To all who obey him. To all who obey the son. I want us to close and behold this morning. To meditate. May the spirit of God warm our hearts. As we consider the glory of the perfect obedience that was accrued in the days of Jesus' flesh. I want us to gaze at it this morning by faith of how perfect our Savior is. This is the obedience that was forged in unthinkable suffering. Even as He peered into the cup of wrath that He would drink from His Father. It was an obedience that was unyielding in the day of testing. 
This is the Son in whom the Father is well pleased. Perfect, spotless righteousness accrued by a real man. And I want to remind us this morning that this is exactly what the gospel offers to you. This is exactly what the good news of Jesus offers to you, is that you who obey Him, who respond in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, that this same obedience is the gift that the Father grants to all who trust Him. Nothing less than the obedience of Jesus. All who trust in Christ are granted to wear the spotless garments of righteousness that belong to the Son of God. Perfect righteousness. He made him who knew no sin. Why? So this great exchange, so that we could become the righteousness of God. This is the exchange that is offered in the gospel, that all of our sins, all of our unrighteousness, all of our disobedience can be laid upon Christ and all of His perfect obedience can be freely and forever granted to us. This is the garment that was woven with the perfect life and the obedient death of Jesus Christ to all who obey Him. To all who obey Him. Those who wear this perfect record, according to this text, are said to receive eternal salvation. Brothers and sisters, think of how glorious this is this morning. Wake up to these gospel realities this morning. This is what Jesus has done. Those who are covered with this, with this righteousness have a righteousness that will never fade away. Why? Because it belongs to Him, the perfect man. Christ Jesus. All who receive this gift are covered with a righteousness that will certainly abide the day of judgment. It will abide the fire of God's wrath. There is no more condemnation because this perfect Son has already borne it for all who obey Him. All who respond, all who trust in Christ covered with a righteousness that fully secures the favor of the Father. That there's nothing left for you to do to make God love you, to earn His favor. You are covered through faith in Jesus Christ with the very obedience, the perfect record of the Son of God. It is literally, eternally impossible for all who are in Christ to be more right with God than you already are. Why? Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing stuff because we're covered in the obedience of Jesus himself. Be encouraged this morning. In 10 million years, if you're in Christ, you won't be more right with God than you are right now. Why? Because you cannot improve this perfect record of Jesus Christ that has been freely granted to all who trust him. And this is what he accomplished in the days of his flesh. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up our souls to you this morning. God, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for the many reminders, Lord, that you've given us this morning about your son, Jesus. And Lord, we come to plea again, God. Lord, we know our hardness and our coldness. And Lord, we pray that your grace would overpower our sin this morning. God, we pray that, Lord, you would encourage the faint-hearted today. God, we pray that you would cause your gospel word to be driven in the hearts of unbelievers this morning. Even the ones that thought that they were blocking you out, Lord. God, do your holy work this morning in their life. Pluck them like a brand from the fire, Lord. Make them a trophy of grace. Arrest them with the beauty and the glory of Jesus. Consume their minds, consume their hearts, Lord. God, we ask that your word would bear fruit in the heart of your people this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.